afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. Our guest today is Maggie Nelson. Maggie is a poet, essayist, and scholar with a PhD in English literature from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She's taught writing and literature at Wesleyan University, the Graduate Writing Program of the New School and Pratt Institute of Art, and recently she joined the faculty of the School of Critical Studies at CalArts. Her books include two collections of poetry, Shiner and The Latest Winter, both from Hanging Loose Press, and a mixed genre narrative about the 1969 murder of her aunt, Jane Mixer, entitled Jane, a Murder. Her newest book, The Red Parts, chronicles her experiences after her aunt's case was reopened in 2004. She was a finalist for the Poetry Society of America's Norma Farber First Book Award, and she was nominated for a Penn Martha Albrand Award for the Art of the Memoir. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, um, I was hoping that we could get started by having you just read a little bit from um, the mixed narrative work that I mentioned, mm-hmm. titled Jane, A Murder. Absolutely. Um, all right, I'm going to read the first piece from this book, and it is called The Light of the Mind. She had been shot once in the front and once in the back of the head. She wandered, trying to find someone to remove the slugs from her skull. She was not dead yet, but she feared she was dying. The holes in her head were perfectly round and bloodless, with burnt, flared edges, two eclipses. The passage of air through the holes felt peculiar, just dimly painful, like chewing hot or cold food on a cavity, the sensation of space where it had once been dense and full. Sunlight shot around the circumference of each black rind, so that a long shaft of pale light cast out from the center of her forehead, and another shaft streamed behind her. Is this the light of the mind? Is this the light of my mind? So I was a genius after all. The thought made her smile, but then she wondered, why had the light always been invisible? I must have been squandering it. I must have felt only its vaguest rotations. Now what can I do with it? If I could find a lampshade, someone could read by it. I might illuminate entire rooms, entire dungeons. I shine so bright. 
but in fact she was losing the light. It leaked everywhere, unstoppable. Thank you. That was Maggie Nelson reading from her book titled Jane, A Murder. So I was hoping that you could explain a little bit to our listeners the concept behind that first book Mm. about your aunt. Well, the concept behind this book took a long time to come into being. It was a, it's a result of a many-year investigation of my aunt's murder. Um, and I began looking into what happened to my aunt, who was murdered in 1969, because no one in my family w- was really talking about it or ever ever talked about it. And um, I just started writing li- little poems about things that I knew or things that I found, and I started my research from it was deepened and, and deepening and deepened, and then I just col- kept collecting and collecting and kept writing poems. I made a long list, about 150 things I knew about my aunt's murder, and I would just kind of set out to write a poem about each one. And then at a certain point, it became clear that I had a book on my hands, albeit a very unconventional one and perhaps mm-hmm. a mess, and I didn't know what to do with it, so I, I moved it in and out of prose, and I, mo- I moved it in and out of forms, and then eventually I just realized it was going to be a book that each page would have its own um, logic and form, and that together they would all tell the story of whatever I was able to find out about what happened to my aunt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so was it was it sheer curiosity about about your aunt's story, um, your family situation, or was it more deeply rooted than that for you? Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, a lot of a lot of times people in this book, Jane, it, it, my mother accuses me of being obsessed with this murder, and that's happened otherwise. It's not. I wouldn't really. I don't think of it as being obsessed with with the murder. I think of it as um, is um, that everybody has things in their family life that they would just that they really would like to know more about, and they cast different kinds of shadows. And in this case, the shadow was just a very dark one because. It wasn't just that my mother had a sister who had once been killed, and it wasn't, I mean, who was no longer, and it wasn't just that she'd been killed, but it was also that she might have been killed by the serial killer, and so there were these six other girls. So there was just kind of a lot of murkiness around um, that, because my mother growing up hadn't wanted to, um, because the story was very horrible, and didn't want my sister or myself to be exposed to that horror. So, it, But that, of course, bred a lot of curiosity, and then, um, you know, it, it I um, it, it 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 deepened into many other things that I'd thought for a long time about women and about violence and, and mm-hmm. things which really came to a head in the red parts even more than in Jane, I think. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think you're right about that. But um, that that story, um, Jane in particular, has a, a connection to where we are here in Ann Arbor. She was mm-hmm. a student here at the University of Michigan, is that right? Absolutely, and it's so it's so great. I felt so great descending into this building today just because... Um, uh, because this place is clearly very rich for me and my and my family, and and Jane was 23 years old and a first year law student at the University of Michigan Law School at the time of her death, and she'd also been here as an undergraduate, as was my mother and as was my father and <laughs> many mm-hmm. others along the way. So, mm-hmm. um, and and Jane's murder unfortunately was also tied to, to the U of M because because she'd put up a a, um, a card for a ride on the ride board, which I believe still. It's exists. still there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I walk by that. And also, I would just add one more thing, which is that um, so Jane was wanted to be a civil rights lawyer, and that that there is a, a word here for social justice and civil rights in her name, and um, and so so in many different ways, she means a lot to this place. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got you've got a lot of different influences in Jane, which is the thing that I appreciated most about it, and I found the most fascinating. You've got you've got Really poetic passages, some prose, documentary sources, newspapers, quote-unquote true crime books, um, 
fragments from her diaries, letters from her fiance, and um, it seemed to me like you were really trying to reconnect with someone or maybe mm-hmm. connect with someone that you had never had the chance to connect with. Mm-hmm. It's true that you never actually knew no, her. No, I was right? born after she died. Okay. So did did you feel like you were trying to create an accurate non-fictional account of her life or was there was there some more fantastical mm-hmm. elements in there as well? It was really an open question for me when I started because, um, you know, there were times when I really felt like I was recreating my aunt and I looked for journals of hers and I was working with them. So I was surrounded by her writing. And as any writer knows, to be surrounded by someone's writing, even if even if that person's 13, it can be a way of being in their mind, you know. Um, but I was also vexed by the fact that I didn't know my aunt and that I um, and I say this a little bit in the red parts is that I um, I was wary of of getting involved in these kind of myth- mythologized notions of, of channeling someone that you didn't know or or of taking on her. You know, it's been a problem in my in my family about me reminding people of my aunt. And even though that was, you know, nice because she was, you know, by all accounts, very smart and very ambitious and very talented. It, it um, you know, she also she didn't come to a good end. And so it was, it's always been that's always been a source of tension for me. So I. I was really um, in between about whether about whether or not I was reconstructing a person or whether or not um, the story was my own. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the medium. Why did you choose to write this book in poetry and not in prose, like the mm-hmm. red parts? Um, I just I started off writing as a poet, <laughs> so it's a mm-hmm. form that's very natural to me, obviously. But um, I think in in retrospect, and it's very hard to know about genre in prospect. <laughs> it's easier in retrospect, I think. Um, but the Jane, I was trying to put together pieces of a story that I didn't have. And I think poetry lends itself to the fragment. Obviously, it's a form about pieces. And and I was just building from pieces. And so that was very natural, I think. Uh, the red parts uh, is... I was attempting to do a more reportage kind of a thing, which I hadn't done before in a very in, in nonfiction prose, and and that had that book had the opposite problem, which was that there was suddenly, after many years of no information and no access, suddenly there was way too much, you know. So, pictures I never wanted to see, I was seeing on a you know a large screen in the courtroom, uh, you know, pieces of Jane's file that I decided against requesting, were suddenly being talked about for hours on end, you know, and. Um, and so it so that glut of information did not lend itself to me to poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed about Jane, I felt like it did a really good job capturing sort of the feeling of disbelief that necessarily surrounds an event, you mm-hmm. know, that, mm-hmm. that is this horrifying and terrible. Um, you've got really poignant and touching passages, especially coming from her voice, that feel very real. But you also have a lot of motifs running through the book. Um, You've got that image of the holes in that first Mm -hmm. poem that you read, which um, has, you know, this light pouring out of it. And you've got reoccurring dreams happening uh, Mm -hmm. throughout the book, which gave it sort of a really just unbelieving feel mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. was that something that you were actively trying to capture with that book? I think so. That's a it's well stated. Um, the the first piece I read, the opening piece of the book, uh, those are the only pieces of the book that um, that ostensibly take on a voice that's a third person voice. But what they are are their dreams that I had. Um, a recurring dreams that I had about being shot in the head, and this was before actually I really knew how my aunt died, and so I was. 
um, very bothered by these dreams. And then when I looked into her murder and figured out that that was what I was kind of unconsciously um, bothered by, um, then then that sense of the dream became very important to me because from the very start I had been um, – the dreams were what had told me that the story was not dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and so in that sense um, – um, and I very much wanted, uh, and also Jane's dreams are not the same as aspirations, but there is some crossover. And, you know, I don't know what Jane's dreams were, but I, certainly I had access via her journal to a lot of aspirations. So. Mm-hmm. Well, both of these books struck me, um, even though the second one is titled A Memoir, mm-hmm. The Red Parts of Memoir. Both of these struck me as different types of, of memoir. And I was wondering as a nonfiction writer, how you went about sort of the investigative process of mm. creating these books? Mm. They're very different. I mean, Jane was really, and, it, and it's, it's, it's talked about in here very actively. I mean, in a sense, Jane, this book is just the story of my, um, of my inquiry. So you have me in it going to the library and you have me in it looking for boxes in, in garages and you have me in it opening old letters and tracking down, um, via search engines, you know, Jane's fiancé and things like that. Um, so, and and then, like I say, that was kind of the fragments of what I found were collected. The red parts is, like I said, more reportage because I went to a trial here in Ann Arbor um, in the summer of um, 2005 and and just really sat there with my notebook every day and I didn't have to, I didn't have to research very much. I just mm-hmm. had to listen and to take notes and then to try afterwards to reconstruct um, what I'd written down. So. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai, and I'm here with poet and essayist Maggie Nelson. Uh, we just talked a little bit about uh, your earlier book titled Jane, a Murder, and um, I'd like to talk a little bit more now about your latest book. Uh, it's called The Red Parts, and it's a memoir you wrote. I guess it seemed like sort of a postlude to Jane. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. A, not necessarily a continuation, mm-hmm. but more of a reflection on, you know, what had happened, that creative process, mm-hmm. and just the experience mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, is it true? I'm not sure if this is true, but mm-hmm. I heard that when you found out that your aunt's case had been reopened, was that while you were here in Ann Arbor? No. No. No, but... um no, but I it, I found out it was reopened in November, and uh, I was I came to think I came to Ann Arbor in two thousand five to read from Jane, so that was a couple months later. Mm-hmm. But when I was here, the case had already been reopened. But I it was hard to go around and talk about Jane with this 
the book really changed for me once it was reopened and I had to kind of go around doing readings and stuff from it as if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. But, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Well, I was hoping that you would read us um, a little bit from the red parts. Sure. And um, this first passage, went, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want to say before I read this that um, this starts off with a description of an autopsy photo and... Um, I just it's kind of important to me to give the just a little bit of context because I have a lot of feelings about mm-hmm. spectacle and violence, but um that these photos were this is the second photo of six that appeared at the trial, and the passage that comes before this has to do with the attorney warning us um, about um, these pictures and about my grandfather deciding whether or not to see them. so uh, photo number two: Jane on a metal gurney, a profile shot from the sternum upwards. She is naked, except for a baby blue headband, which is thin, just a little more than a ribbon. Her hair is auburn and shiny with blood. And then, tied around her neck, almost like another fashion accessory, like some perverse ascot, is the stocking that was used to strangle her, its knot and two ends streaming toward the camera. The stocking looks reddish, probably from the age of the photo. As far as I know, it was just a plain brown stocking, not hers quote, an import into the scene, end quote, as they say, embedded so deeply and wrongly into her skin that it appears here as a cartoon. Her face and shoulder and armpit are luminous, light sources unto themselves. Her armpit looks especially white and tender, like the armpit of a little girl, an armpit that's never seen the sun. After the first few photos, Hiller comes over to our bench. He whispers that the next is particularly gruesome, that we might not want to see it. It shows Jane's neck after the stocking was removed, he whispers. The furrow is quite deep. My mother repeats this information to my grandfather, who is sitting to her right, and whose hearing isn't good enough to make out the low decibel of Hiller's whisper. He says we might not want to see this one, my mother says into his ear. The furrow is quite deep. Huh, my grandfather asks, what's that? You might not want to look at this one, she repeats in a stage whisper as she lowers her head toward her knees. On her way down, she whispers to me, tell me if I should look. With my mother bent over, I feel suddenly exposed on the bench, the sole bird left on a wire. I just sit there, dumbly staring at the screen, waiting for the next image to come up, feeling about as able to control what I allow in as an antenna. I am developing little methods, however. Each time an image appears, I look at it quickly, opening and closing my eyes like a shutter. Then I look a little longer, in increments, until my eyes can stay open. I know the image will stay on the screen for some time, until the attorneys and their witnesses have said everything about it that needs to be said. So there's no rush. You can acclimate to it slowly. And the thing is, you do acclimate. Well, my mother whispers from her bent-over pose, it's not so bad, I whisper back, but you might as well not look. Thank you. That was author Maggie Nelson reading from her late, latest book titled The Red Parts. Um, that's a, you know, that's a difficult passage. It is a difficult passage, particularly um, the passages with those photos mm-hmm. are really, they're hard to get through. But um, I thought, I wanted you to read that one because I thought that it very pointedly illustrated just the emotional and psychological difficulty that you were confronted with, your family was confronted with, you know, in meeting this situation and this history mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to me that you and your family, I mean, I can't, I can't really say about your family, but from what you write about it, were really, 
you know, just fumbling through trying to figure mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. how to deal with all of these things that mm-hmm. were being presented to you and coming at you. Mm-hmm. Um, some that were new and some that had been presented before or maybe mm-hmm. not fully presented before. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought that that passage really, really highlighted that mm-hmm. particularly well. And I, I thought it was interesting because I was thinking about writing. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about writing as a similar experience, writing as sort of a way that we're looking at fum- how we fumble through our experiences mm-hmm, and how mm-hmm. we deal with that. And mm-hmm. um, and I got to think about your book mm-hmm. as not just writing, but mm-hmm. writing about writing mm-hmm, and writing mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. writing about getting mm-hmm, through things. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about what you feel is the the role of the memoir, mm-hmm, the purpose of the memoir. Mm-hmm, is it mm-hmm. is it just writing about an experience, mm-hmm. or is writing about writing, you know, an inherent part of mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm. I, d- I can't speak really about memoir in general in a sense, and in a way I don't, you know, in a way I don't know if I see this book that way. But I do think that you are entirely right that when I was writing it, that said, I, w- I, w- I was kind of embedding within it uh, a whole kind of maybe personal, maybe public, uh, depending on the reader, discourse about about what it means to write um to write both about autobiography and also about difficult things, um, and also maybe more than that about the United States' particular relationship to, to, to those things, because I think that you know, I'm, I'm very interested in autobiographical writing, and I'm very interested in writing about difficult things, um, but the kind of the kind of mass market way that that plays out um, is it's of interest to me, but it's 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 troubling to me as well. So I was kind of aiming this book. Um, this this book took place amongst a lot of media interest in my aunt's story, um, and so this book was kind of one of the only ways that I could find um, a place for the discussion I wanted to have <laughs> amidst a discussion that, um, about trauma um, and about uh, reality, as it were, um, that a lot of news programs and reporters and other people were wanting to have, but they weren't the same conversation, so I needed to write the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, one thing I really liked about how you wrote how you wrote the memoir was that though you are reflecting on past experiences, it didn't feel like a a memory necessarily Mm -hmm. because you are very much situated within the scenarios that you present. Mm -hmm. Um, There are both reflective passages that are looking back in time as well as um, some passages that narrate details of what will come Mm -hmm. in the future and Mm -hmm. what you know now happened. Um, How did you decide how you would navigate through time Mm -hmm. in your book? Mm -hmm copied it from somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we get all of yeah, our good exactly, ideas, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Um, I copied it from somebody else. It's not entirely true, but but I think what you say is that um, is really true and that part of part of my discomfort around the memoir issue is that, you know, w- embedded within that word is the idea of, of memory and like you say, it's very you know, as a poet, I'm really have been always a student um, of the present, you know, mm-hmm. and the present and the past are not um, distinguishable, which is a lot of the theme of this book, and a lot of that being played out through the the, um, the physical activity of DNA. But um, but I don't like the idea of you know of of, the, of looking back you know on past experience from some kind of more august august place um, and and reflecting on it. So I was trying to and, and the book I was, that I was kidding that I copied from, but it, but it's not really a joke. It's a is a, a very short book by um, the Austrian uh, playwright Peter Hanke. Um, and it's a book he wrote after the suicide of his mother, but the book vacillates between the story of his mother's life and the um, present that which he's writing, which is a moment of shock and horror and sickness 
on his part and with no real attempt to um, get to a different place. It's just about recording. And I guess one thing I don't like about the expectation of memoir, and maybe this sounds really dismal, but is, um, you know, the arc that you have to be at a, a better place and you started the kind of rags to riches arc. And so this this book to me was about being broken. Um, many people in it are broken and it, it's, pre- it's pretty broken all the way through. And so part of that not... Um, I'm not saying there's no transformation or nothing happens, but um, mm-hmm. but it's not explicitly concerned with with rendering that. It's about it's which is more what I think witnessing is actually about, which is just again a form of being present. Mm-hmm. I think you reflect that very well through the way that you do jump through time and you jump through um, the different perspectives of the characters um, and the members of your family. But um, you've got a fragment that floats around through there from um, one of my favorite authors, Joan Didion. Mm-hmm. Um, one of her most famous quotes, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And um, very much like me at one point, you admit that you never really wanted to make up stories. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was interesting. I really identify with Mm -hmm. that. I Mm -hmm. really enjoy poetry and nonfiction and Mm -hmm. have always really struggled writing fiction. Um, But you you chose to use both poetry and prose without fictionalizing Mm -hmm. this account or Mm -hmm. attempting to fictionalize it Mm -hmm. at all. Which did you feel was more effective in avoiding fictionalizing mm. the, Jane's account of a woman of a woman that you didn't know? Mm. Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I felt pretty stringent about truth when writing Jane, but I was playing with things. I, you know, I, I wrote it over a period of time, and it was a little bit more. I hate to say this because it, it, it sounds a little. Um, emotionally removed, but it was a little bit more about formal experiment, you know, in a sense, after a certain point, because I worked on it for so long, and also because there was no immediacy in my personal life with it. It was just a project um, on the side, kind of, of other things I was, not on the side, but, um, you know, in my life. Um, But I, so I was playing with her journals, and I was, and also just poetry um, puts a formal pressure on things, so when you're deciding about line breaks and different, you know, you're having these different thoughts. So I wouldn't say it's about and part of why I like poetry is that it's not about fact or fiction per se, but mm-hmm. I would say that there's more aesthetic play in a certain sense. And the red parts, um, the, the the truth, whatever that might be, and when you're talking about a court case, it becomes very um, complicated <laughs> what the truth might be, especially mm-hmm. if someone's life, as this gentleman Gary Leiterman's was, is hanging in the balance. Um, but because there were so many people involved and because it was a legal experience, so because there were... Um, you know, real people with real lives, um, many of whom I didn't know, as opposed to just my family and Jane. But in, in this book, I'm talking about a lot of other people um, present at the trial, and therefore truth and stringency about what could be known and what couldn't be um, known became um, incredibly important to me, um, mm-hmm. legally and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm really curious. You mentioned um, Gary Lederman. He was the, the man who uh, was eventually... Accu- he was accused and eventually found guilty for murdering Jane. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a really poignant passage in the red parts where he's sentenced mm-hmm. and uh, the jury finds him guilty. And um, it was sort of a troubling moment, I think, in the book itself because it seemed like a very troubling moment in mm-hmm. your mind. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was curious about the idea of justice mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. whether or not you viewed that as a, as an adequate form mm-hmm. of justice for your for yourself personally yeah i mean a lot of this book is really 
and it's also partly why it's not in poetry. Is I'm not sure that justice is be, is a top. I mean, it's well handled in a lot of poetry, yeah. but I think as a as a as a complicated political topic, especially at this moment mm-hmm. with the word invoked so many times in, in regard to the war in Iraq and just ways that aren't completely inscrutable. So this book is it is really about justice, and I think that. You know, part of the problem of all the shows of the law, law and order and everything else, and that is that people the, you know, the show the, the, there's verdict, and then you decide if it feels like closure or not closure, or justice and not justice, and then the page is turned. But you know, I'm done with this book, but but life goes on. Gary Leiterman's first attempt at an appeal was denied, and he has another one mounted. And you know, there's a it you know, it for my family and his family, and you know, this is not over, so it's over for the for the for the book. But um, so in that in that sense, um. Um, you know, in that sense, justice is an ongoing, ongoing process. Mm-hmm. I really like there was one point in the book when you talk about uh, how justice is always presented in the passive, mm-hmm. in the passive voice. My, how, te- my teacherly, uh, yeah, my teacherly. Uh, um, how it's yeah. always it's dealt out by mm-hmm. some you know unknowable body, mm-hmm. the state or mm-hmm. you know God, whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really that was really telling mm-hmm. because I think that your book really grappled with identifying justice, where it comes from, how we should react to it, like whether or not we should feel a certain way when mm-hmm. these when these um, forms mm-hmm. of justice are imposed on mm-hmm. us and on our society. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I guess I just would just say that just because it just remind, reminded me of what I was saying about poetry and prose about presence is that, you know, justice in some sense, like when you're saying, did you feel it? In some sense, it's a feeling, you know, that's a different thing than 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 a, than a living force, the structuring kind of the pragmatics of, of, of life, you know. So what, so a lot of people ask if my family felt justice or felt closure. And, you know, whether or not we felt it is a little bit in some sense irrelevant to how we want to structure a court system, a prison system. You know, they're not, they're not the same thing. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting to sort of this liminal space in which we're trying to identify what exactly justice is in contrast to the unbelievable body of evidence that mm-hmm. was presented mm-hmm. against him. I mm-hmm. think, I can't remember the number exactly, but you mm-hmm. state in the book that the DNA evidence claimed that for it to be someone else's DNA was mm-hmm. something like 170 trillion to one. That's true. How, I mean, I, I can't even imagine <laughs> trying to write about something that absolute mm-hmm. in poetry. Mm-hmm. Right, yes. yeah, that's the trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's so the I trouble. can see, I can sort of see why when presented with all of that, yeah, just overwhelming factual evidence why yeah. that came out, the red parts came out mm. as it did. But um, we're going to take another short break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back.
listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai, and I'm here with Maggie Nelson talking about her latest book, The Red Parts. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the break about the idea of justice, maybe not necessarily what it is, but how problematic it is and um, how you dealt with that. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about the media and mm-hmm. how um, the media was a constant presence in your life and it's a constant presence in the book it seems like someone's always sort of peeking over your shoulder listening to you and your mother in the bathroom you know eavesdropping on you um it must have been very very difficult to deal with there was a a point in the book where you're confronted by uh the producer of 48 hours is that right and they wanted to um do a documentary or true crime story about your aunt yeah they i mean the not sure confronted exactly, but the, but the, yeah, mm-hmm. they were contacted and then um, and then and then months later during the trial, actually, and then my mother and I agreed to do a um, interview with them. Mm-hmm. I was hoping you would read us a passage from the book about that particular interview. Sure, I'd love to. This is um, this is from a chapter called Prime Time, and this is about this is a second interview actually that took place in New York after the trial was over. So. Before we started this interview, I had vainly asked the correspondent if she thought I should put on some makeup so that I would look better on camera. I had arrived at the studio wearing none, assuming they would want to cake me up. She tells me not to worry. They wouldn't be filming me if I did not look good. This is prime time, she winks. No black people, no bad teeth. I freeze in horror, then try to go in on the joke. Not even good-looking white people with bad teeth? She laughs, shakes her head, adjusts her microphone. What about good-looking black people with good teeth? She laughs again and signals to the camera that we're ready to roll. Inside, I am not laughing. Am I sitting here so that Jane Mixer can join JonBenet Ramsey, Elizabeth Smart, Lacey Peterson, Chandra Levy, Natalie Holloway, and the dead white girl of the week club? Girls whose lives and deaths, judging by airtime, apparently matter more than all murdered, missing, and suffering brown people combined. I am sitting here because I wanted, I still want, Jane's life to matter. But I don't want it to matter more than others. Am I sitting here now, months later, in Los Angeles, writing all this down, because I want my life to matter? Maybe so, but I don't want it to matter more than others. I want to remember or to learn how to live as if it matters, as if they all matter, even if they don't. After the interview, the crew asks if I will take them on a little tour of the city, pointing out some places that were important to me while writing Jane. At dusk, we end up at the main branch of the New York Public Library, where I answer a few more questions on the big marble steps out front. Fifth Avenue is starting to buzz all around us, a languid, soupy summer rush hour. Yes, this is where I first looked into my aunt's story. Yes, this is where I first embarked on plumbing its deep mystery. The narcissistic pleasure is immense. A story that I felt so alone and caring about for so long is suddenly of interest to a camera crew. Years of compulsion, confusion, and damage suddenly gel right there on the steps, in the light of the camera, in the eyes of intrigued passerbys, into a story. And not just any story, a story of struggle and hope. I am the hero of this story. Perhaps I am even a master warrior. But standing there on the steps, I feel like a phony. Inside my mind, the fragments are rolling loose. The bullet fractured the bone long ago. Now there is but a pile of lead shards rattling in a glass vial. There is no smoking gun. 
Thank you. That was Maggie Nelson reading from her latest work of nonfiction titled The Red Parts. Well, what I felt like you were getting at um, in that passage was sort of this perverse obsession that American society and culture has with not only people who are murdered, but women who are murdered, and in particular, white women mm-hmm. who are murdered. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a really, that's a really troubling statement when you say it out loud. Mm-hmm. It sounds really, you know, it does mm-hmm. sound kind of perverse. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I was wondering what you had to say about actually being in that in that situation where you were one of the mm-hmm. family members, because we've got all these high-profile cases floating around the news mm-hmm. and the names that you mentioned in there. Um, did your perspective on that change significantly after you became involved in this sort of media mess? Oh, you know, it was a hard call like to get to whether or not to have anything to do with the media mess or not. I mean, one might argue that the dignified thing to do is just not, you know, not take not take part in it in any way. Um, so I think it was a little bit difficult to. Um, to just to inter- just to do the interview and still feel as though I was you know and and to not feel like you were just you know taking part in more of this glut you know mm-hmm. but I think that I, but I'm glad that I did it mostly so I could write about it mm-hmm. and I'm also glad that I did it because um, you know in looking at different people whether it's you know the Peterson family or different people looking at or you know Matthew Shepard's family different different scenario not a woman but um you know in a lot of ways different people have tried to. Um, do different things, some of which I really agree with and some of which I really don't agree with in terms of how they've u- utilized um, murder in their family. And, uh, and you know, I, I don't have any soapbox and I don't, I, you know, in a sense, this book is about ambiguity more than anything else. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. I felt like that um, I still had something that I wanted to say. So in that sense, um, I was willing to forage into the media mess with in, in just the hopes of saying anything different mm-hmm. than than is normally said. I think that is an important distinction to draw between the way in which um, especially the television media and I guess I guess print media too, newspapers were presenting mm-hmm. your aunt's story, the story of the trial and you know, the story of your family going through this as opposed to how you presented it there. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I thought it was sort of a, a complicated Mm-hmm. A complicated idea because at the mm-hmm. same point that we're troubled with the media mm-hmm. delving into this, you know, delving into this story mm-hmm. when it's your story, mm-hmm. you're also presenting it to the public. So I guess I was curious mm-hmm. about um, how you, as a writer, view your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ultimately, were these books for you? Were they for mm-hmm. Jane? For your family? Mm-hmm. Were was it meant to make any of that just available to the public audience? I mean. I say in the red parts there's a part where I, there's a line where I end a chapter saying some things are worth telling simply because they happened, you know. And and this, you know, we don't choose our burdens per se. And this burden was, is a burden in my family. So in that sense, um, I think one has to write about what one's given if if one does this kind of nonfiction or autobiographical writing. So in that sense, um, and so, and so in some sense there was really not a choice for me. Um, uh, the Jane, in terms of audience, you know, you break a line, you make a poem, and uh, you're pretty much um, ensuring that a lot of people aren't going to want to pick up your book. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the enjoyable fool's errand of um, of of allowing that book to be brought to some uh, national attention. It, I mean, that it, to me, that seemed like performance art um, to 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 bring a poetry book onto 48 hours. I thought that that was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the red parts. It's you know, it's 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 tricky. It's a it's a tricky um, 
It's it's a tricky thing. I mean, the passage that I just read and other things, I mean, I guess if I could do anything, it would be to, um, instead of just having people, you know, sitting around channel surfing, not asking any questions about these, you know, just whoever, Anna Nicole, whoever the, the fixation is, you know, to just present any different angle on on justice, on race, on, um, on, on the fixation itself, you know, any of those things I can do seem to me like a service. Mm -hmm. No, I completely, I completely agree with that. And I really appreciated that about your book because as much as, you know, we as intelligent, educated people who, you know, see all of these images sensationalized through the media every day. Um, I, I appreciated that you made the story available, um, in a way that, felt very true I think the most the most terrifying thing about um, the book was just that it did seem so universal and it seemed so accessible to me and particularly when I read Jane I actually read it I read it last year I read it in March when mm -hmm. I was a student here mm -hmm. at the university mm -hmm. doing like moot court mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. doing all of these activities that really mm -hmm paralleled her life and it was very very unsettling to me mm -hmm, because I felt mm -hmm. like you know I, I felt like she symbolized the female population here at the university mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and um I I think that it was necessary and important for you to write about that mm. I'm glad you did but yeah I would also just say on that 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 Part of why I feel strongly about <laughs> uh, both of these books in that in that regard is that um, is that for for when I was growing up, because Jane was uh, you know one of a handful of women in the law school here, and because she was a, a political activist and somewhat you know of a radical um, people in my family and and otherwise there was this loose association that doing those things made you a target of some kind of um of some kind of bad thing happening to you and it really was important to me um as as politically engaged and as an intellectual and as a and as a graduate student or any of the other incarnations i've been um it was really important to me to unloose that that tether because i think it was um you know what happened to her was um, had, had nothing to do with 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 any of that. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was a it was a bad event, mm -hmm. and to continue to tie it is a way of fear mongering of young women. To um, yeah, do you feel like you've reached a closing point with Jane's story? Gosh, I hope so. A friend of mine the other day was joking that everything's a, everything's a trilogy, and I was like, I can't, I can't take it, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> That's understandable. So, uh, so I, you know, I wasn't expecting to write the red parts, but I'm glad that I did, and and we'll see what happens mm -hmm. next. You know? Do you feel like you're moving more, more into non-fictional prose, or are you going to stick with poetry? I am. I learned a lot writing the red parts about about nonfiction and you know some of the people that you mentioned you know Joan Diddy and other people who I also reread um, um, taught me a lot and I'm you know I'm interested in learning new things I think right now I'm working on things that I would say kind of more fallen in in between space that more like prose poetry um, which you know Jane has parts of but Jane's really a poetry book and the red parts is really a nonfiction book so I'm right now I'm a little bit more interested in, in the other space. Mm -hmm. you know. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and, um, you know, sharing sharing your insight about not only writing poetry and writing prose, but also sharing some of the more personal details of your life. Um, thanks also to our listeners, to our engineer, Chaz Barrett. Uh, my name is Rachel Harkai. You've been listening to The Living Writer Show. Our archives are available as podcasts on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store online and search for Living Writers. Stay tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor.
quiet spot. Perhaps a private room. Enter it. Close the door. The Daily Sports Report.